0: So Hummer, it sends a different message from if you drive a Prius, right? Like it sends a different message from, um, it sends a different message in terms of uh, who, who you're trying to be, the role you're trying to play in the world, what you value. You drive a Hummer, it sends a different message than if you drive a Prius, which makes it really confusing that there's now an electric Hummer. <laughs> They've done it. So in, in September 2017, uh, a company called Creasel Electric unveiled their first prototype of a, of a Hummer H1 that they have converted completely to electrical energy, and who did they have uh, do the unveiling but the governator, and so Arnold Schwarzen- Schwarzenegger did the unveiling, um, you might not know this, but he's a Hummer aficionado. He bought the first Hummer in America uh, in 1992, and he's got a collection of them. But he's also an environmental guy, and so over the years he has had his collection of Hummers uh, converted over to green energy. He's got a biodiesel Hummer and a, and a hydrogen-powered Hummer, and now he's really excited that there's an electric Hummer. And of course, that's kind of the perfect—that's the perfect, you know, mode of transportation for. Arnold Schwarzenegger, because it's, you know, it's kind of, it's environmentally conscious, but it's also large and in charge, right? <laughs> so it's, it's perfect for him, but I, but I have to say, like, really care about the environment, giving you dirty looks and judging you because you're driving around in this Hummer, and you, I feel like I would want to just, at every stoplight, like, stop and roll down the window and say, it's electric, it's electric. Like, don't, don't judge me, it's electric. Because the truth is, your mode of transportation, it says something about you. Now, in our passage for today, uh, we're going to see Jesus choose a particular mode of transportation for a key moment in his ministry, and it's going to tell us about him. It's going it's to teach us some things about Jesus. And so we're continuing our sermon series, uh, which is called God Among Us. It's it's a journey through the gospel of John. And so we started this last spring and we took a break over Christmas. We're jumping back in and the goal is that we're going to hit John chapter 20, which is the story of the resurrection, right on Easter Sunday. So there you go. It's going to be awesome. We planned ahead. Um, It's going to be great. So... We're picking up the story again. We left off in, uh, we left off in November, and um, we had just gotten to John chapter 12, where Holy Week begins. Now, Holy Week is the last week of Jesus' life, and it, it takes up about 40% of John's gospel. And so we're going to spend some time on it. And so we're picking up the story uh, there again today. And we've, we've heard our passage read. Okay, so just as we dive in here, it says, uh, the next day, verse 12, the, Jew, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Now remember, um, we, we talked a bit in previous sermons that this is Passover time. Passover is kind of the key Jewish uh, Festival of the year. It's kind of the, the most important one. And the custom was that Jewish men would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So Jerusalem would have its normal uh, population plus thousands of extra people, pilgrims who would come in for the, for the Passover celebration. Um, these people, so these people, uh, kind of the whole nation, or the majority of the nation, has gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, think, about, like, think about the Canada 150 celebration in Ottawa. Like it's, it's this big national gathering, right? They hear Jesus is coming into town, and they, they rush out, and they essentially throw Jesus an impromptu parade. Sometimes understanding your Bible just, just means asking and finding an answer to the simple questions. For instance, simple question, why are they so excited about Jesus? John tells us, he gives us an indication at least, in verses 17 and 18, where it says, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. And so the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, the people were actually angry at him, and, and he almost got arrested, and he had to flee. Now Jesus comes back into town, and everybody's excited about him. And John tells, tells us that's because of what happened in chapter 11, and we looked at it in November, that Jesus performed really what was his, his crowning miracle, his most impressive miracle. He raised a man from the dead. His friend Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And he walked out of the tomb alive. And so in chapter 10, uh, the people in Jerusalem were angry at Jesus. Chapter 11, he raised Lazarus. And now, John says, in chapter 12, because of that, the people are excited. And, and that's, that's a decent explanation. But think about it for a bit. Don't these people seem like they're taking that miracle a little bit personally. Like, it's an impressive miracle for sure, but most of these people don't know Lazarus or Jesus, and Jesus raising Lazarus doesn't really affect their lives. Why are they so enthusiastic? Why do they, why do they all rush out and, and throw a parade? And how do they all know to wave palm branches and, and shout these particular words? Who coordinated that? Maybe there's more going on here. Of course there is. Of course there is. So let's talk about the palm branches. Why are these people waving palm branches? There's other trees that grow there. Cedar or hyssop trees could have waved flowers. Why palm branches? Now that's a question that's maybe mysterious to us. It would not have been mysterious in ancient times. It would have been very clear in fact. Uh, It goes back to a man named Simon Maccabeus. So 150 years before Jesus uh, lived, the Jews and and Jerusalem and Judea were under foreign rule. They were were a conquered people. They were occupied by the Greek Seleucid Empire. They were living under foreign oppression. And in 141 BCE, a Jewish leader named Simon Maccabeus uh, rose up And he led a rebellion, a revolt. And it was a successful revolt for a time. Um, And so he led a Jewish army into battle. And they fought the Greek army out of Jerusalem. They drove them out of Jerusalem, uh, thus securing freedom and independence for a time uh, for Jerusalem and Judea and the Jews that lived there. It was this defining uh, moment in the history of the Jewish People. that's 150 years before Jesus now we have a record of that, uh, of that event uh, it's in a book called First Maccabees here's how it's described it says on the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year the Jews entered it, Jerusalem with praise and what's that word? Palm branches, and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So here's this defining moment in uh, in the Jewish people's history. Okay, freedom for the Jewish people because of this military victory, and the and it climaxes in a uh, in a parade into Jerusalem with a bunch of shouting and singing and Palm branches. There's no mystery about what these people mean when they're waving palm branches. It's their maple leaf. It's their stars and stripes. It's the symbol for, th- for these people that says, though foreign nations oppress us and conquer us, we will rise again, just like we did under Simon Maccabeus. Okay? It's, their, it's their national symbol. It's like waving a flag. Which brings us to another question. Why, why in in John chapter 12, do the people shout what they shout? Of all possible words, why do they choose to shout, verse 13, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, hail to the king of Israel. Your Bible might have a, excuse me, have a uh, cross reference or a footnote there that will tell you this is a quote. It's a quotation from Psalm uh, 118, verses 25 and 26. They're they're quoting that psalm. A couple of things about that psalm. Number one, um, that psalm was part of the scripture readings for Passover. And so just like we've seen before in, in the Gospel of John, we're at a Jewish festival and some of the dialogue actually comes out of the scripture readings for that festival. That's where these words are coming from. Another thing about Psalm 118 is it's known as the Conqueror's Psalm. It's known as the Conqueror's Psalm. It's written uh, from the perspective of a... Um, a victorious, triumphant, dominant, Israelite, military leader, okay, Uh, possibly King David or one of his descendants, it's written from that perspective. And so it says things like this, though hostile nations surrounded me, I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. Yes they surrounded and attacked me, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. They swarmed around me like bees and blazed against me like a crackling fire. But I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. And so if you think modern worship songs are too repetitive, just saying, just saying. I'm going be chucking out a few psalms. I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. This psalm is permeated with Israelite uh, nationalism. And it takes two things. It takes their, their nation's desire for military victory and their worship of God, their worship of Yahweh, and it marries those two things together. It's all about the glory of Israel's military victories and how God gave them those victories. And if that doesn't sit well with you, good. More on that in a few minutes. So, here we are in John chapter 12, and this, in, in the story, this is the Sunday before Passover, which also makes it the Sunday before Easter, which also makes it uh, a Sunday that Christians kind of memorialize as Palm Sunday. And we've kind of taken it and, and made it into this, this expression of worship, that yes, we do want to welcome in Jesus, the coming Savior. And that's good and that's true for us. Is that true for the people in the story? The real story is a little bit more problematic than that, isn't it? The real story actually has very little to do with worship, and it has a lot to do with the people's desire to overthrow Roman oppression. It has a lot to do with the people's desire for a military revolt. These people aren't out for worship, they're out for blood. So yes, as John says, the people are are excited about Jesus because he did this miracle raising Lazarus from the dead. But they're not coming out to worship Jesus because he's this gracious giver of life. They're coming out and they're really excited about Jesus because they're thinking, a Jew, a member of our oppressed nation, has access to divine power over life and death we should take that power and aim it at the Romans. That's why this miracle is so personal to them. That's why they get so excited about this miracle. They believe that Jesus is so powerful that he can lead the nation in a revolution. That's what's going on here. Now, stop for a minute and empathize with the Jewish people. We modern Canadians maybe don't get this, but it is a hard life living under the thumb of an empire. It is a hard life being the oppressed people, the conquered people. You know, for, for many of us, we have, uh, we have some Mennonite ancestors. They could probably speak to this better, better than many of us modern people. Good, right? It's a hard life living under the thumb of an empire. And for the Jewish people, it had been 800 years where they had, for the most part, been under foreign rule and they were rightly sick of it. Here's what's crazy though. If you trace the history of Israel and the Jews. By the way, the Jews are a subset of Israel, in case you wondered. Uh, Trace the history of Israel and then the Jews in the Bible. Sometimes they're the conquered people, and sometimes they're the conquerors. In other words, the, sometimes they find themselves on the other side of this equation. Sometimes they're the ones who, uh, who have been dominated by another nation and they're carried off as spoils of war or, or taxation and oppression is imposed on them. And sometimes they're the ones who come over the horizon and another nation starts trembling and they destroy them all with the authority of the Lord. They destroy them, they take them captive, they burn their cities. Because that's how history plays out, isn't it? It's this sequence, this cycle of power shifts, this cycle of um, of violence, this cycle of force. Again, Canadian history is a little short to to measure this, but there's this cycle where where the military might or the economic might or the political alliances will shift, and sometimes those big power shifts put you on the top, and sometimes they put you on the bottom. You can see that in Israel's history. Here they are, and for 800 years, mostly, they've been on the bottom and the best solution they can come up with is let's perpetuate the cycle of violence and hope that this time we land on top. So that's what's going on with the crowd. Now, let's talk about Jesus. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Your mode of transportation says something about you. That's true today. It was true back then. And so back then, um, for a king to ride into city, uh, a city, his mode of transportation was a signal. If he rode into a city on a chariot or a warhorse, guess what? He was coming for a, a fight. If a king rode into a city on a lowly, slow, unimpressive donkey, it would have been clear he's not here to fight. See, the people, the crowd... Are whipped up into a frenzy They're saying Jesus has the power to free us from Rome Get this man in a Hummer And he rolls into town driving a Prius There's more Look at verse 15 It says um, says that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy That said don't be afraid people of Jerusalem Look your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt And again, your Bible might have a footnote because that's a quotation um, from Zechariah. That's that's a quotation from the book of Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, centuries before Jesus, from chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah. Jesus is choosing a donkey. He's choosing to fulfill this prophecy. Now watch what Zechariah, look at the rest of the prophecy. Okay, watch what Zechariah writes in the very next verse. So he says, your king is coming riding on a donkey's colt. I, this is God speaking, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. So a couple of things to notice in that, in that verse. Number one, there's this contrast between war horses and donkeys, right? Like, both donkeys and war horses and, and also chariots are mentioned in this verse. And this king, this prophesied king, chooses not to ride a chariot or a war horse. Secondly, it ends by saying, your king will bring peace to the nations. Uh, your king will declare peace to the nations. Not nation, nations. And lastly, he removes the chariots, the war horses, and the weapons from what nation? From what capital city? From Jerusalem, capital of of Israel. See, this is not a this is not a prophecy about arming Israel against her. Her enemies. In fact, it's a prophecy about disarming Israel. It's not a prophecy about equipping Israel to perpetuate the cycle of violence and hopefully wind up on top. It's a prophecy about removing Israel from the cycle of violence and actually ending the cycle of violence. So, the people are stirred up they want war. And Jesus rides into town very deliberately, signaling peace. We've been singing today about how Jesus is a king. And that's because John is setting us up to see Jesus as a king. He's, he's coming into town in the midst of a parade. Okay, the prophecy mentions a king. In the passage right before this, he was actually anointed with oil, which is a, a kingly... Uh, symbolism okay he's John is setting us us up to see that Jesus is coming in and he is a new king now when you have a new king the question on everyone's mind is what kind of a king will this be a new administration okay Uh, a new it is this gonna change my lifestyle what kind of king is Jesus and so Jesus in this moment uses this key moment of his ministry to tell us something about what kind of king he is. He's the kind of king that refuses to pander to bloodlust and power hunger and hostility and nationalism. He's the kind of king who, though he has access to unlimited power, refuses to take up that power and use force against other people. He's the kind of king who will bring peace to the nations. Sorry, got a little lag here. The good thing is, this is the first time I've had any problems with this software. (laughs) Here we go. You may remember, oh man, you may remember back in John chapter 6, Jesus did another miracle, not as spectacular as the Lazarus miracle, but still pretty amazing. He fed 5,000 people miraculously. And in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. See, since at least John chapter 6, there's been this, this current saying, Let's use force, let's, let's use Jesus' power to, uh, to uh, sponsor, to power a Jewish uprising. And in John chapter 6, he said, He said, No one, he slipped away. Later in the story, uh, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is, the authorities will come to arrest Jesus. One of Jesus' disciples will take out a sword, and Jesus will say, put away your sword. Don't you know those who use the sword will die by the sword? Don't you realize that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. And then again, uh, in John chapter 18, um, it says... Uh, Oh man In John chapter 18 Jesus is on trial And he says my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom If it were my followers would fight To keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders Jesus says my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom If it were my followers would fight What kind of a king is Jesus? He's the kind of king for whom the the power plays, the use of violence, the intimidation, um, the domination, the threats, the rhetoric that characterize most human kingdoms and many human interactions are have no place in the kingdom of Jesus. Again and again, King Jesus has, has access to power, but he leaves power on the table. Now, there is more to this story, of course. Okay, spiritually speaking, uh, Jesus is a conquering king. Uh, he conquers, not the Roman Empire, he conquers our greater enemies of sin and death. And he brings freedom not just to uh, one people group, but to all people uh, through all time if they, if they believe in him. And so um, there is more to this story, and we'll get there in this series. But understand this for now. Um, Jesus is a king who refuses uh, to, to use force and violence, and instead comes bearing peace. Jesus is a king who will win not by force, but by self-sacrifice. He comes to Jerusalem not to start a war, but to die on a cross. Not to to kill others, but to serve others through his own self sacrifice. That's the kind of king King Jesus is. So, for those of us who follow King Jesus, the challenge then is, how do we imitate Jesus in the way that we live? The question that this passage asks us as Jesus followers, if I can put it kind of crudely, is are we living warhorse lives or donkey lives? I know that a donkey is usually the bad choice. The donkey is the good choice here. Are we living warhorse lives, chariot lives? Or are we living donkey lives? In other words, are we people who go through life using force and intimidation and power and violence to get what we want? Or are we people who go through life serving others self-sacrificially like King Jesus? In, uh, in seminary... I. One of the things that stuck out to me the most was, was I had a professor who used the term waging peace. I believe that that is the calling of those of us who follow Jesus, that we are to be people who don't wage war, but who wage peace in the world. And so, and so we're going to talk just briefly about three ways that we can, uh, that we can wage peace, or three areas. Three areas that we can seek to be um, be the kind of people who ride in on a donkey and not on a war horse. The first one is actual war and peace. Okay, we can talk about war and peace, and so um, we, as a stream of Christianity, the the Mennonite brethren and the Anabaptists—that's our stream of Christianity—and one of our one of our key beliefs is we hold a position of love and non-resistance, that we reject the use of violence to achieve political ends, and and that where there is conflict in the world, where there is violence in the world, uh, not only do we not take part in the violence, but that we are people who actively try to wage peace in the midst of others who are waging war. And so in times of conscription, that means that we serve as, as medics or, or something like that, where we seek to, fi- to find a way to serve and bring peace rather than perpetuating the cycle of violence. Uh, you can talk about, you know, the work of MCC, uh, Mennonite Central Committee, who, who will go into war-torn countries or countries uh, wrecked by natural disasters and they'll try and wage peace in whatever way they can. So we can, we can be people who wage peace in the military uh, arena, in the arena of war and peace. Uh, secondly, how about interpersonal peace? Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that all of us here are not taking up weapons and using them to hurt other people. But many of us, at different times, in our lives can be people who, who come in uh, on a war horse and not on a donkey. Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? And so we come in and, and we'll, use, we'll raise our voice. We'll scare people into submission with our anger. We'll use sarcasm or backbiting or, uh, or threats. We'll undercut people, talk about them behind their back. We'll intimidate them will bully people it's possible to be a war horse person and never pick up a weapon what if in what if this week in our marriages in our parent child relationships who waged peace instead of waged war what if we found ways instead of instead of forcing people into our preferences what if we found ways Instead, to bring about peace, to serve even self-sacrificially. And for sure, I'm not saying let yourself be abused. But what if we found ways to serve self-sacrificially? Maybe you don't need to be right in this situation. Maybe it's okay if it's not exactly your preference. In order to serve others and sow peace wherever we go. And then lastly, um, is, is peace with Society um, one of, one of the challenges about um, about a post Christian culture for Christians is that we remember a time when Christianity was privileged, and if we 're not careful, we can become bitter that Christianity is not privileged anymore. okay, do you understand like we remember a time when we said the lord 's prayer in school in public school and and now we can get bitter, we can get angry that, that, you know, maybe our kids have to hear about other religions in public school. And so what can develop is a, is a warfare mentality between Christians and society. Where what if we, what if we rallied all the Christians and put pressure on people and used power to force people who are not Christians to be more like Christians? What if Christians were known less for waging war on society and instead for waging peace in society? Okay, now, there, there are important Issues that Christians need to take. Waging war. But of waging peace. What if we found a way to be engaged in society. In a way. that, If that was our approach Christians. Maybe that's where God's calling us. And so. We can wage peace in the military arena. Interpersonal peace. And peace in the way that we take part. In society. Worship team, I want you guys to come on up now um, as we wrap up. The really sad thing about this story that we've been looking at today is that Jesus comes signaling peace and the people completely miss it. The people completely miss it. Jesus, for them, is a letdown because he's not. Uh, he doesn't come as a one-man army. He doesn't come as a divine revolutionary. And so they're super disappointed in him. They're not interested. And they say, uh, and, and they wind up chanting, the same people in five days will wind up chanting, crucify him, crucify him. They completely miss what Jesus was trying to call them to. They wanted war, and he, and he came proclaiming peace. Peace. In Luke's gospel, Luke tells this story as well And right at the end of of this story uh, Luke includes this detail Jesus gets up close to the city To his beloved Jerusalem And he's overtaken with emotion He starts weeping Because he knows the people will reject the way of peace And here's what he says He says, how I wish today that you of all people, Jerusalem, that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place, because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And a few decades later, this would come true. A few decades later, the Jews in Jerusalem would get the war that they wanted. And so from uh, the year 67 to 70 CE, the crowds would, the Jews would rise up in a rebellion. They rose up in a brutal rebellion against the Roman Empire. and and a terrible seven month long siege would follow. Remember what Jesus said, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and surround you. Seven months, the city was under siege. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed. Uh, Thousands more died of starvation inside the city because the food supply was cut off. Eventually Roman forces breached the city walls They destroyed the temple. They carried off the furnishings from the temple as spoils of war to slavery. Church, may we not be people who perpetuate the cycle of violence and force and domination. May we instead be people. Would you stand with us?